Greetings in the name of the Lord. My name is Winfield Bevins. Um, I am director of church planning here at Asbury Theological Seminary, and it's an honor and a privilege uh, to just have a conversation in an interview with Dr. Howard Snyder, um, who is a graduate of Asbury Seminary, has taught here as well as numerous um, institutions. Um, he has been a missionary educator in uh, Brazil and has written numerous books um, that have really uh, impacted, made an influence in the church. Um, got a couple of them here, Community of the King. Uh, some of these are, are considered classics. One that um, was recently republished by Seedbed uh, is a 40-year reprint of The Problem of Wineskins, a, a church structure in a technological age, which really has um, some profound insight um, for the time in which we live in today. And so, Howard, it's great to have you with us, and it's great to interview. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to explore these, these matters and uh, go wherever the conversation seems, seems to be most useful. Great. Howard, why don't we begin um, with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, your kind of some of your history and your life in ministry. Well, I grew up in the Free Methodist Church. My parents were missionaries in the Dominican Republic, uh, where I was born, uh, but I grew up in the States and um, went to Asbury Seminary, graduated <clears throat> in 1966, and immediately uh, went into a pastorate in Detroit. And uh, during that period of time, <clears throat> kind of reflecting on my courses and the experience of pastoring in Detroit, especially during the Detroit riots in 1967, began to raise a lot of questions in my own mind about what is the church uh, and what's uh, the church in the city uh, and uh, what shape should it take. And that led to some reflection, which led eventually to the problem of wineskins, uh, essentially rethinking the church and looking at it from a biblical standpoint and what that means for us today. That's great. I think the, you know, the problem of wineskins is a book that um, many leaders have uh, said really impacted their uh, life, ministry, thoughts upon the church um, in significant ways. I remember last year I was um, talking to a pastor in England who had stumbled across it in a bookstore uh, about 30 years ago, and it completely um, reoriented um, his view of the kingdom and the church. What are some, what are maybe some insights from the problem of wineskins after kind of 40 years of republishing it and reflections for today? What are maybe a couple of the key insights that you see that are still particularly relevant for today? Well, the book came out in 1975 and it hit a nerve because a lot of people were asking the same questions that I was about the same time. Should we give up on the church? Uh, you know, what is the shape of the church? How do we rearticulate for today? And uh, I used the wineskins and wine analogy uh, in which Jesus said new wine has to be put in new wineskins to talk about not just the wine, but what are the structures? The wineskins wine are structures, they're human made. And we often confuse the two, the wine and the, uh, and the wineskins, the church and, and the church structure, whether we're talking about buildings or clergy or any number of other traditions. And so I wanted to look, uh, to, to, to separate, to distinguish between the wine and the wineskins. And I think the, the key point of the book, and 
which most people seem to find, to find helpful, was that the wine, yes, is the gospel. The wineskins need to be changed from time to time, and we have the freedom to change them. They're, they're human-made. They have to do with tradition. They shouldn't be sacralized, but rather we should say what needs to change in order to be faithful to the wine so that the wineskins serve the wine rather than the wine serving the wineskins. And that's a perpetual thing or a perennial thing has to happen periodically, especially when there's major changes in the culture. I wonder what would be um, what would be maybe one or two things that just kind of come to mind in terms of maybe what the Lord's doing today um, in terms of changes that need to happen. Uh, with the, with yeah, well, the in some ways, uh, what needs to happen today is what has needed to happen down through history. You know, you and all, you and I have both studied renewal movements down through yeah. history, and you know, and, and I would emphasize that uh, when God does a new thing, as he continually promises to do, you know, and I, as I point out in the book, uh, th there's that which is new, but it also looks somewhat like other renewals in the past. Mm -hmm. And to me, there, there, there are some basic things in that. One is obviously the centrality of Jesus Christ, which may mean clearing away some other things that have clouded that vision. It also means the centrality of community. Uh, we are the body of Christ. And to, to, um, the church as a genuine community, one another community, which we are functionally, not just in theory, functionally members of one another, dependent upon one another, and so on. And then with that, uh, a major emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit and the role of pastors is not to be the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The role of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, kind of a re-articulation of, of the centrality importance of Ephesians 4. Uh, and then ministry growing out of that, you know, I didn't particularly use the word incarnational in the book, but that's the idea of being like Jesus. And uh, those, those are kind of a complex of key things, a community centered in Jesus Christ, centered in worship, but also in uh, one another building up and then the witness that grows out of that witness. And so I, I have a kind of a circle, circular graph there, worship, community, and witness. Those things all together in community that create uh, a dynamic that should look like in some significant ways what the early church looked like. Mm. You know, I've noticed in a number of your books, um, you know, for, for the people viewing, Howard and I are also in a band meeting, which, you know, isn't a rock band, but it's a Wesleyan band that we're part right. of a discipleship band where there's four of us that meet together each week. Um, and when the pandemic hit, um, our band just kept going. We, we haven't missed a week, um, uh, you know, other than travel or, you know, some of us have had something that's come up. And so another thing that I've seen is a theme throughout several, you know, a number of your books, as you mentioned, the point community is, uh, as you look to the early church, you have gathering, but you also have the small group, um, which is essential, uh, kind of a, kind of a recurring theme that you see in renewal movements as well. Yes. Um, would you speak to us a little bit about the importance of being a part of uh, my, whatever you would call it, whether it's a band or a micro-discipleship or small group? Speak to us about that. Yes, well, in the New Testament, the pattern, we see this in Acts, uh, and actually all the way through um, the, the New Testament writings. Uh, the New Testament, there was an emphasis on the church in the home and then uh, other times meeting together, whether in the temple, temple or some larger group. And there's a pattern in scripture.
aperture of the small group and the large group. And um, as many have pointed out, the early church, I mean, you know, there were no really large congregations with no church buildings. The early church, <clears throat> excuse me, was essentially a network of house churches. Uh, over time, as the, the church became more uh, dominant in society, it built bigger and bigger church buildings, bigger and bigger church structures, bigger, bigger and bigger uh, congregations. And in the process, it tended to drop the small group. And it's not either or, it's, it's, it's the two together. And so uh, typically down through history, when the church is not doing well, the thing that's been dropped is not the large group, but the small group. So a key to renewal over and over and over again in different ways has been rediscovery of the church in the home or the, the small group, the cell group, whatever it might be called. They can be called different things at different times. And, you know, there, there are cultural issues that come into play. So that my point is you, you can't have real community uh, in the sense of the pictured in scripture, for example, in Hebrews 10, unless people are meeting together in a small group where they're close enough that they can, build relationships, uh, you know, build up one another, all the one another things that the Bible talks about, encourage one another, speaking the truth and love. That requires smaller groups. And if those smaller groups are not functioning, the church is not functioning in nearly as dynamic a way as, as it should be. People are not being changed. They're not developing into, into disciples because discipleship happens more in the small group than in the large group because it creates the uh, environment where which the Holy Spirit can work. So that's, that's been a key, it ties in with everything else, but that's been a key uh, all the way through my writings and all the way mm -hmm. through uh, writings about renewal down through the history of the church. And it's a, because it's in the New Testament, it's grounded in all of scripture, in fact. That's good. You know, I kind of see small groups as kind of in, an organic infrastructure. And um, coming out of Radical Wesley, you know, I think method, early Methodism is a great example of, of this as a renewal movement that what made early Methodism different than, say, other revival movements that didn't have the discipleship structure, uh, it allowed it to continue on for generations. Um, and is a good, say, counterbalance to the charisma. You, you know, as you mentioned, the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, but I kind of see the small groups as kind of undergirding um, and creating a trellis or a framework yeah. um, for ongoing yes. um, renewal. And, and to your point, uh, would you say that when Methodism began to let go of um, the small groups, that was symbolic, if, uh, for lack of better terms, of the shift away from a movemental dynamic to more of institutional structure, Yes, very much. You you uh, used two or three metaphors there, and one of them was organic. And uh, I really like the organic uh, metaphor because it's, it's actually more than a metaphor. It suggests something living, and the church is the living body of Christ. And we tend over time to move away from organism to institution, uh, you know, from, uh, from that sense of being um, relate, relationally connected to being organizationally connected. And so in the case of Methodism, you know, Methodism was a renewal movement within the Church of England in the 1700s. And Wesley was in the Anglican Church. He remained in the Anglican Church. He wanted to see renewal. What was lacking in the Anglican Church, well, two things primarily, was, uh, was a real 
firsthand experience of Jesus Christ in a, in a very personal way and a place to nurture that, specifically small groups. So Wesley provided in the Anglican church what was missing, and that was uh, small groups, that is to say what he called the class meetings and the bands and other forms of, of small groups. And that became the dynamic of this movement. And as long as, the, as, as they were functional, the class meetings and the bands, the movement was dynamic. But uh, within, and, and they were, the, the bands, the class meetings were dynamic for about a hundred years in Methodism, in England, <clears throat> and in um, the United States and, and around the world. But when, um, when the bands started to decline and band leaders kind of faded away, and class leaders and more preachers became pastors more and more doing everything, the movement declined because it, the vitality of Methodism depended on an infrastructure of small groups, this organic infrastructure. And we should not be surprised because that's the way all life is. Look at it, plants, animals, you know, that's the way God, had, God created the creation is to function on a cellular basis with a vitality, a kind of an ecology of the groups functioning together within the larger whole. That's good. Um, what, you know, one of the themes that you pick up in Radical Wesley is um, Wesley's, and I, I think it kind of comes back to the wineskins idea of um, Wesley really was a unique balance of part of the radical Wesley is Wesley's ability to hold these things in tension. Yes. Uh, so is it evangelical or is it social? Is it, is it word? Is it sacrament? Is it, you know, um, and, and so with that is tradition and innovation. And so what you're advocating isn't just scrapping everything from the past. Um, uh, but talk to me about that idea of like Wesley's kind of dance of tradition and innovation being rooted in a tradition, but yet, um, you know, moving forward in kind of a movemental dynamic. Are there some yeah, lessons well, today for us in that? Yeah, I mean, Wesley's a fascinating character because he really was very conservative. <laughs> in many ways, he was a conservative. He didn't want change. He says, I'm for the old ways, you know. But he would innovate when he saw that was necessary to be faithful to Scripture. I think that's a good lesson for us today. You know, we don't ch change. There's no value in change in itself unless it's changed in the right direction from something that needs to be changed. Uh, so Wesley did much within the Anglican church, Wesley did not change. But this big change uh, among two or three others was the forming of uh, the small group. <clears throat> so he was a traditionalist. He, had, he uh, affirmed the tradition, the traditional faith, the sacraments, as you said, uh, the traditional worship, the creed and so on. But he innovated in terms of the small group. He innovated also by appointing non-ordained preachers. He innovated by involving women in ministry. He innovated in a whole lot of ways. But at the heart of that was the class meeting, the small group, and also the use of people in ministry who weren't traditionally ordained. And those were dynamics of it. So it's that combination of tradition, innovation, it's what we need today, you know, and it's, it's not, we have to be careful that we don't just innovate to be different. There's a lot of innovations there that are counterproductive. We need innovation, inter, uh, innovations that are consistent with the gospel of scripture. And we need 
tradition that's consistent with scripture, where it's not, tradition needs to change. And uh, if innovation is not leading us back toward um, what the church is really supposed to be, then it's not valid either. Okay. What is, um, another theme um, that kind of runs throughout your books um, in, in Radical Wesley, but also in Problem of Wineskins, um, is you, you talk about the whole gospel. Um, and, you, you know, kind of this holistic, the gospel isn't, our calling is not just to proclaim in word, but also deed, word and deed. Um, but also the gospel to the poor, um, standing for social justice issues. Um, I know that this is a particular thing that you have been passionate about and have taught on over the course of your ministry. Talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, well, in, in uh, Problem of Wineskins and Community of the King, in the Radical Wesley, and I think pretty much in all of my books, I, I talk about ministering the poor to the poor be, and with the poor because that's the gospel. You know, Jesus said the, uh, in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is how the crowds uh, around knew that he was the one who would be sent. Uh, in large measure, was the fact that he preached the gospel to to the poor, not not a, not just preaching to, but being with and being an advocate for. Well, Wesley picked up on that, <clears throat> and the first time he preached out of doors to the coal miners in nineteen, I mean, seventeen thirty nine in in Bristol, England, he took that text: "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." That's prophetic. It goes back to the Old Testament, the promise of jubilee and so on. Mm. And it is always prophetic because Wesley said something I think is really profound. He said the greatest miracle that Jesus did was preaching the gospel to the poor. That was a greater miracle than healing people because he says Christians will not take the gospel to and be among the poor except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in Wesley, we see it in Francis of Assisi, uh, we see it in other renewal movements uh, down through history. And we must see it today because the tendency of the church for sociological and other reasons is to keep rising up the socioeconomic scale and leaving uh, the, what Richard Niebuhr called the disinherited poor behind us. And so uh, the vitality of the church, the renewal of the church, together with these other things, is taking the gospel, going to the people that Jesus went to and would, would have us go to preach the gospel to the poor, where the greatest power of the gospel is often shown by people, by the transformation that Jesus brings. And that means, as you were hinting, not just uh, personal faith in Christ, but also the social transformation that comes along with that. You can't minister with and among the poor becoming without becoming very concerned about injustice, socialist issues. That was, that was what William Booth discovered in founding the Salvation Army, and it's seen over and over again down through history, and it needs to be seen today. Good. Um, because I'm director of church planning, what, what are some lessons, you know, you've done a lot of work in urban cities from Detroit, Chicago to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, you know, you taught in, um, in Dayton, Ohio. What are some, what are some lessons that you would encourage those that are going to be planting new faith communities? What are some essentials as someone who in the midst of this world we're in at the moment, what are some things that you would encourage church planners to be thinking about in terms of holistic church planning? Well, well, two or three things. First of all, <clears throat> to talk about planting is to talk 
uh, organic language. And so we need to think about what does it mean to, 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 get a, to plant a seed, get it growing and to encourage the growth. And uh, so uh, I, I would uh, advocate what I call an organic approach to church planting, which means uh, starting churches that uh, are based on these principles of, you know, not only centrality of Christ, but the small group being concerned about all society, but particularly uh, the poor, not, not simply aiming for success, not aiming for success in a worldly sense, but aiming for fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then let the seed grow, you know, let the community uh, grow and see, see what uh, becomes of that. And in an urban context, it's true everywhere, but especially in an urban context, often <clears throat> what is needed is face-to-face -face community. And so uh, the, the forms of the small group and the house church and so on are, are important and prophetic and, and must not be left behind. I've seen churches start uh, small and then they become bigger and bigger, bigger. They get a bigger building, they get a bigger congregation and people say, well, what happened? We don't have the community we used to have. Well, that's because the, the, the small infrastructure, small groups has not built, been built into the structure in a way that's that's reproducible nourishable over a period of time so you know those those things uh, need to happen and when that happens there must be and tends to be i think an emphasis on the ministry of everyone the gifts of everyone the the, the various gifts of the spirit that paul talks about in ephesians 4 and first corinthians 12 that are found uh, as well among uh, women as men they can be found among young people. They can be found about among the poor. They can be found among the uneducated because they don't depend on education or status uh, or gender. They depend on the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So those those are some uh, some basic things. That's great. I know you are really passionate about um, the environment. Um, the environmental crisis that, that the global world is experiencing at the moment. Um, you've written about this. Um, what, are, what are some thoughts um, that you have on that? I, I definitely would want us to um, address that as I know that's an important issue for you. Well, yeah, let me, let me um, tell a story in that regard. I think when I graduated from seminary in 1966 and began pastoring in Chicago, I mean, in uh, Detroit, uh, I saw the need for, I, I, I discovered the church as a living thing and saw the need for uh, church renewal. The more I grew in my understanding, I saw, oh, it's not just the church, it's the kingdom. The king, church doesn't exist just for itself. It exists for the kingdom. And that was the theme of my book, Liberating the Church, the church for the kingdom. Uh, but, uh, and, and I, I very much affirm that, you know, we are kingdom Christians, not church Christians primarily. But uh, as I've grown in that and, and gone back over and over, uh, over into scripture, uh, I see that God's concern is, is for the whole creation. It is not only for people. It's not only for the kingdom of God in, in the more traditional sense. It is for all creation. And I'd, I'd long been fascinated by Ephesians 1.10, where Paul says that God has a plan for the fullness of time to bring everything in heaven and earth together under one head, reconciliation of all things. And then um, that is elaborated in, in Colossians 1, all things in heaven and earth, things visible and invisible. 
And a, a new insight to me just a few years ago was when Paul talks about the reconciliation of all things and the renewal of all creation, for example, in, in uh, Romans 8, he's not inventing a new idea. This is a theme all the way through scripture. So I went back and looked uh, through scripture and what the Bible says about land. And I came across not only the uh, creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, but in Genesis 9, God's everlasting covenant. That's what it's called, Genesis 9. God's everlasting covenant with the earth. And mm -hmm. I thought, why have I not heard this? You know, it's been in the Bible. And uh, so I, I have become very much convicted that, uh, that I had missed this and that much of the church had missed this, even though it's in the Bible from the beginning, that the, the, the gospel is not just about God's covenant with people. It's about God's covenant with people and the earth. And it's not the whole gospel if it doesn't include God's plan for the earth. And if, if we understand that, we will do a better job of creation care. We will do a, a better job of agriculture. We'll do a better job of uh, uh, health, physical health, uh, and so on. Because uh, all health is interconnected, physical, spiritual, environmental, mental, social. Wesley understood that, by the way. Wesley was a, a prophet in regard to this. In the 1700s, he already saw this. The uh, he you know wrote this book, the wisdom of God and creation, and we uh, a key to renewal today, not just a renewal but a key to fidelity, is understanding that the gospel and God's plan is for the all all of creation, not just human beings, and we short circuit ourselves, we mm -hmm. impoverish ourselves in our own experience of God if we don't see that God's concern uh, for the earth. So it's not just a matter of responsibility. It's a matter of opportunity. All that we gain personally, and just from a selfish standpoint, from trees and plants and healthy gardens and a healthy environment and a healthy Amazon, when the Amazon is burning, all of earth suffers. And, uh, and when our waters are not taken care of in the United States, all of the earth suffers, pollution, all those things. These are contrary to God's plan. And if we don't take care of the garden that we've given to, we suffer and especially the poor suffer. So uh, my conviction is uh, that God's plan involves people and involves the earth, and we under misunderstand God's plan for people if we don't understand also God's plan for the earth. So, and and I've, I've focused on that most especially in my book, Salvation Means Creation Healed. So I think uh, everything else about renewal is, it must be woven into that picture as well, because it's biblical. It's what the Bible says. You also see this um, historically. Um, you see that kind of, I, I wonder if kind of the ravaging of the environment and the Christian lack of interest or care is more of a modern phenomenon um, that previous ages of Christians um, just kind of understood this, you know, the, the holism of the gospel. Well, you certainly see more of a sense of the holism of the gospel <clears throat> at various times down through history. Um, you know, you see it certainly in the Franciscan movement. You see it in Celtic Christianity, uh, the early Celtic Christianity out of uh, Ireland and then into uh, Scotland and, and England and so on, and other places in the world, other times in the world, and, it, and it's, it's true uh, right now. But um, it, um, so it has, it has been seen. 
uh, but it's often been lacking. And, and today, with the emphasis on science, technology, the enlightenment, uh, and, and uh, you know, multinational business and so on, there's been a tendency to, to move away from what, uh, what the Bible actually says. And we need, to, we need to discover that and rediscover it. Uh, as to scripture itself, um, in the 1800s in the United States, slavery was a great scourge. It was in, the, of course, going back before that in the 1700s. The Bible says a lot about slavery and really is a basis for anti-slavery, but Christians didn't catch it strongly in the United States until slavery became so much of a problem. That is, people began to realize that the same is true, to, is true today. It's the fact, I think, of the environmental issues, the climate crisis and so on, that is causing Christians to say, we need to, to pay more attention to what the Bible says on this. So it's always been there in scripture, but I think God is using the current environmental crisis as a, way, as a kind of wake-up call to Christians and say, you know, look what I've already said. Look the fact that these creatures belong to me. The environment belongs to me. It's, 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 uh, it's my garden. It's God's creation that you are mis, uh, mistreating and God will hold us accountable. And so there's a, there's a harmony that should exist and can exist because it's built into the creation. And I think uh, there is a sense in which the uh, current environmental uh, and, and climate issues are bringing this to our attention, not as a secular concern primarily. I mean, it's, it's misreading it to view as a secular or a political or a liberal concern. It's a biblical concern. It's a discipleship concern. It has to do with our own spiritual health and, 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 and uh, discipleship fidelity. So that's sort of the picture within which I see it. That's good. Well, as we close, I think, again, kind of some big themes throughout your writing and teaching um, have been, I would say, just kind of a rediscovery of the kingdom in terms of kind of the holistic gospel. Um, the, the, the gospel is not just proclaimed that renewal is... Um, preaching, but it's also living out um, justice. It's also living out these themes of caring about deeply about the things that God cares about. It's it's about formation, discipleship, community, and yes. it's all kind of interconnected with how we treat the environment is in some ways symbolic of everything else. And it's all interconnected, I would say, with that organic theme very much bringing us back to that. Hey, as we close, Howard, um, this has been great. I'd love to just ask you about what are you currently writing about? Well, I, I um, have two things I'm working on that kind of are an extension of earlier themes. One is very much concerned about this discipleship issue and noting that in scripture, the emphasis all the way through is not just on what you believe, but how you walk. Walk as uh, uh, walk in God's way, and then later in the New Testament, walk in the way of Jesus. So I'm working on a book, I'm calling it Truth Today, The Word and the Way, and I'm looking at Christian doctrine through the lens of Jesus. So I have uh, about 11 chapters. Each chapter tells the story of Jesus and then uh, investigates various traditional doctrines through the lens of uh, Jesus and obedience. The other one is a book on Francis of Assisi, Years ago, I did a book on John Wesley. I'm doing a similar book on Francis to show how God used, in this case, Francis, then the Franciscan movement, the dynamics of a renewal movement, and then what we learn from that today. So like the Radical Wesley is a three-part book 
Francis himself, how what happened to him, his conversion and and uh, all that he did, and then how a movement formed around him, and what we learned from that movement itself and its cultural embeddedness, and then uh, key lessons that we need to discover or rediscover for today that we see embodied in, in that movement in the 1200s. Well, we will be looking forward to that coming out. I know you and I have had a lot of dialogue around the Francis book um, and you, you actually went to a CC and um, walked, walked the grounds and drew some inspiration there. Yes. So. Walked where Francis walked, <laughs> prayed where Francis prayed. <laughs> Yes. I love it. Well, Howard, thank you so much um, for your time well, today. So thankful for you, your ministry, and also just all the great um, teaching and writing that you've contributed to the church over the years. Thank you.